You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Nikita, M.D., Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Torso, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pablo, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And a warm welcome to our newest patrons, Buddy, Kieran, Ethan, Lindsay, Mystic Moon Goddess, and Robbie. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. You want to know how bad I am at my job? I'll tell you. Do you remember way back when when we talked about Captain James Misson? About utopian ideals and libertalia and the 100% fictitious tale of a pirate that never sailed the seven seas? And I hear you out there. I hear you say, kinda? The reason that we talked about that story when we did was because I intended to segue the final leg of William Dampier's Pacific Adventure, the Indian Ocean leg of his first circumnavigation, into the story of Madagascar and the Pirates of the Round. It would have been so nice and neat, such a clean bit of storytelling. But that's not what happened. Instead, as I delved into the source material and the surrounding history, I realized that there was a lot more to cover, mainly American history. To get into the Pirates of the Round, it would have been a disservice not to have a pretty firm grasp of colonial English North America and their piratical tradition. Were I a better organized, better storyteller, I wouldn't have made that mistake. I would have held off on Captain James Misson. Until today. Because today, all these months later, we're going to return to that story of James Misson and Thomas II. This is episode 198, Men of Dissolute Lives and No Principles. Now, we're not going to spend much time 
retreading old ground, recovering the story of Captain James Misson. He wasn't a real pirate, he wasn't a real person. He was a figment of an author's imagination, a figment who appeared first in a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates, Volume 2. Volume 2 of A General History was first published in 1728, that's four years after the original, and Volume 2 is different. The prose is a bit different, the style is different, but more than anything, it's the tone of the text, the tenor that's different. While the first volume was sympathetic to pirates' rebellious attitudes and libertarian worldview, that sympathy was usually subtextual. Volume 2, on the other hand, shouts those sympathies at full volume from page 1. Well, technically page 3. The first two pages introduce James Misson as a second son of a down-on-their-luck noble family in Provence in southern France, a young man who has a series of misadventures involving corrupt clergymen and other men's wives, a young man who finally falls in with a wayward cleric named Caraccioli. Caraccioli is a Catholic, but his rhetoric is full of venom for the corruption and sin of the church, as well as the nobility. Up to that point in the story, Misson was just a lovable young rogue with good manners and no money. But upon meeting Caraccioli, he starts to become radicalized. And we'll get to that radicalization in a minute, the meat of it. But first I want to talk about the authorship of A General History of the Pirates. That discrepancy between volumes 1 and 2 has often been explained with the supposition that they were written by different people. If we accept that Captain Charles Johnson was a pen name, and that... Daniel Defoe was not behind that pin, then we don't know who the author of A General History was. However, in the early 2000s, a professor at the University of Kiel in Germany named Arne Bulachewski did a ton of research on the topic. They finally published a paper entitled Daniel Defoe, Nathaniel Mist, and the General History of the Pirates. Bulachewski proposes that a man named Nathaniel Mist, a former sailor in the West Indies turned radical newspaper publisher, or, if you prefer, a privateer turned pamphleteer, he proposes that Nathaniel Mist was the probable author of both volumes of a general history. And his argument is really good. There is some relatively hard evidence to back up his claim. For example, the first person to publish a general history of the pirates was Charles Rivington. Rivington also published a bunch of Nathaniel Mist's work, under the name Nathaniel Mist, and the two men lived just a few blocks away from one another. Moreover, a general history of the pirates was registered at Her Majesty's stationary office under the name Nathaniel Mist. It's all convincing stuff, and it's beginning to catch on, although I doubt we'll see editions of A General History under the name Nathaniel Mist anytime soon. But if we accept that Nathaniel Mist was in fact the author of A General History of the Pirates, both volumes 1 and 2, then a lot of the politics and the 
shift in tone between the two volumes really begins to come into focus. Nathaniel Mist was born in 1685. He would have been about ten years old when all of the drama concerning Thomas II and Henry Avery and William Kidd, all of those pirates of the round, when it exploded on the world stage. Just a few years later, Nathaniel Mist went to sea. However, by the time of the Pirate Republic on Nassau, he was in his early thirties and had retired from his seafaring life. He missed both of those movements, if you could call them that. But it's not like he couldn't have sailed in the Pirate Republic at Nassau if he had chosen to do so. He was in his twenties, but by that point he had evolved politically. Nathaniel Mist was a Jacobite, and that... Well, look, this is all getting way ahead of our overall story. At this point in our story, the early 1690s, the Jacobites were still a relatively conservative movement. They were all about crown authority and putting James II back on the throne, but if we were to peek behind the curtain a bit, to look forward a couple of decades, the political scene and the Jacobite movement itself had drastically shifted. By that point, James II was dead. It was his son, James Francis Edward Stuart, who some called the Old Pretender, it was he that claimed all of his father's titles. And James III, as he styled himself, was a populist. When England became a constitutional monarchy, in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, the nobility took more and more power upon themselves. That was the point of the revolution. But that meant that all of the grievances of all of the people fell on noble shoulders rather than on the king. Do they have a bad harvest? Are the people going hungry? It's the nobles' fault. Is there a pandemic, an outbreak of disease? It's the nobles' fault. Are they overtaxed? It's the nobles' fault. And... In a lot of cases, that was true. But James III played to all of those grievances perfectly. James III argued loudly in the press that he would never allow his people to suffer so. He would see his people fed and happy and treated justly. He would lead England into a new golden age. All they had to do was put him on the throne. And the moment at which James III was making these arguments was the moment to make those arguments. The early to mid-1700s were fertile ground for what they call enlightened despotism. They were about to start popping up all over Europe. We're talking about big names here. Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great, and Frederick the Great, and dozens of others over the course of the century. These enlightened despots were monarchs that fought for expanded royal authority, sometimes almost an absolute monarchy, but they used that power largely to make the lives of their people better. I'm sure it's just happy coincidence that all of this goodwill toward the people secured their position on the throne, and filled their coffers, and expanded imperial holdings throughout their dominions. It was Julius Caesar. This is the Caesarian playbook. Both Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar used this kind of populist rhetoric to leverage their own personal power, but they did actually follow through. They 
made things better for regular people at the expense of the nobility. That's the state of Jacobitism in the early 1720s, a radical, populist, monarchist movement. As a somewhat prominent Jacobite, Nathaniel Mist started writing and publishing pamphlets and a weekly newspaper. Now, none of that was overtly Jacobite, but they were very anti-Whig. That's the party of liberal, constitutional, noble power. But even though he was publishing an anti-Whig rag, he didn't waste any ink supporting the Tories either. The Tories were old, stuffy conservatives, and that's not what Mist was about. Nathaniel Mist was a radical, a revolutionary, even, but he was careful. He never argued for James III too openly in any of his publications that would very likely see him arrested. Instead, he spent his time tearing down James III's opponents. Nathaniel Mist did, though, hire a young, promising, up-and-coming author named Daniel Defoe. Defoe was clearly skilled, brilliant even, but he was not there working for Nathaniel Mist in good faith. Daniel Defoe was a Whig. He was a liberal. He took that job under Nathaniel Mist as a spy. He was there to gather information. Now, Defoe was working for Nathaniel Mist at just the right time that it's not impossible that Daniel Defoe did indeed write some of a general history of the pirates. The literary analyst who examined a general history of the pirates back in the 1930s, a linguist named John Robert Moore, came to the conclusion that Daniel Defoe wrote a general history, but he did so through intuition. No evidence, just examining the style. And that's been debunked at this point, but he might have been on to something. Not that Defoe wrote the entire manuscript. The evidence against that is just way too strong, but maybe when a certain passage read like Daniel Defoe, it was because he at least had some input in that. Either way, though, it would have been under the supervision of Nathaniel Mist, if we accept that Nathaniel Mist did indeed publish the work, which for today we're just going to accept that he did. Less than a year after the first volume of A General History of the Pirates was published in 1724, Nathaniel Mist was arrested, probably on information provided by Daniel Defoe. He was arrested as a subversive, a Jacobite advocating for rebellion and a publisher of foul works. Officially, it was the pamphlets and his weekly newspaper that were the culprit, the reason he was arrested, but... His newspaper was failing. They had virtually no circulation. On the other hand, a general history of the pirates was flying off the shelves. A book like that was sure to catch the attention of the authorities. Nathaniel Mist spent a little over a year in prison. He was released in 1726. In 1728, A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, was released. And it was different. The vaguely rebellious tone of the first volume is sharpened in volume two. That second volume fully glorifies the anti-establishmentarianism of its protagonists. Libertalia, a free and independent pirate utopia, 
really takes shape in Volume 2. It's an island paradise filled with beautiful and sexually liberated women, an island paradise from which one could sail out to rob and kill the kind of bastards who would throw me into this cell, I mean, the kind of men who are desecrating our beloved nation. Reading a general history, Volume 2, feels almost like reading works written by someone like Vladimir Lenin or Huey P. Newton or Emma Goldman or any of a dozen different revolutionary thinkers, usually the kind of works that they wrote while in prison or in exile. Take this passage from A General History, Volume 2, as an example. First, after falling in with that wayward priest, Caraccioli, he and James Misson take to sea and eventually lead a mutiny. The mutinous crew gathers at the helm, and this scene takes place. Quote, the boatswain asked what colors they should fight under, and advised black as most terrifying. But Caraccioli objected that they were no pirates, but men who were resolved to assert that liberty which God and nature gave them, that indeed obedience to governors was necessary when they knew and acted up to the duty of their function, were vigilant guardians of people's rights and liberties, saw that justice was equally distributed, were barriers against the rich and powerful when they attempted to oppress the weaker, when they suffered none of the one hand to grow immensely rich, nor, on the other, to be wretchedly miserable. But when a governor, who is the minister of the people, thinks himself raised to this dignity that he may spend his days in pomp and luxury, looking upon his subjects as so many slaves created for his use and pleasure, avarice and tyranny, when nothing but oppression, poverty, and all the miseries of life flow from such an administration that he lavishes away the lives and fortunes of the people to gratify his ambition." The author goes on like this for a couple of pages, but it becomes pretty explicitly about 18th century politics, so we're going to skip it. Eventually, Caraccioli goes on, quote, It speaks a generous and great soul to shake off the yoke, and if we cannot redress our wrongs, withdraw from sharing the miseries which meaner spirits submit to, and scorn to yield to the tyranny. Such men are we, and, if the world makes war upon us, the law of nature empowers us not only to be on the defensive, but also on the offensive part. As we then do not proceed upon the same ground with pirates, who are men of dissolute lives and no principles, let us scorn to take their colors. Ours is a brave and just and innocent and noble cause, the cause of liberty. I therefore advise a white ensign, with liberty painted in the fly, and if you like the motto, Adeo a libertate, for God and liberty, as an emblem of our uprightness and resolution. The cabin door was left open, and the bulkhead which was of canvas rolled up, the steerage being full of men who lent an attentive ear. They cried, Liberty, liberty, we are free men. End quote.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. That passage starts on page three. The book has barely begun, and the author launches into this scree against corrupt nobility and the righteousness of rebellion. This book is less a history and more a a manifesto. Really, it's about progressive ideas, especially for the time, you know, Enlightenment-era stuff, inalienable and natural rights, that kind of thing. But It's clear that whoever wrote this was a radical in every contemporary sense of the word. Now, believe it or not, today's episode is not a history of Nathaniel Mist or of a general history of the pirates. It's not even really an examination of the politics in that work, but those ideas, those viewpoints in that passage are all integral to our story. Even if they weren't the kind of opinions that were explicitly the feelings of real pirates. I mean, most pirates weren't versed in Enlightenment philosophy. But those rebellious, anti-government sentiments were exactly the kind of issues with which men and women of dissolute lives and no principles were concerned. According to A General History, Volume 2, following their mutiny, the crew of James Masson's ship Victory discussed their options. One man suggested the West Indies, another the North American English colonies, Providence and Virginia in particular. Apparently, the North American colonies were a popular idea, however, wind and weather turned against them. A third man, after attempting to reach North America, suggested Bermuda, and that was agreed upon but the ship Victory was turned away by a terrible storm, and it's here that Thomas II's story begins to intertwine with that of the fictional James Masson. The terrible storm that turned the Victory away from Bermuda is apparently intended to be the same storm that hit Thomas II in the real world. The story of James Masson after they eventually reached Madagascar was lifted almost whole cloth from other contemporary factual accounts 
of real voyages to Madagascar. Non-piratical East India Company voyages, one in particular that put in at St. Augustine Bay. That real voyage got involved with politics and war there on Madagascar. They tried to establish an English colony and almost succeeded. They taught the friendly local tribes with whom they were allied to speak English and began to integrate their societies by bringing as many of the young women of the friendly local tribes to their encampment. Now this really happened. The English, though, were eventually chased off, partly due to the war that they got involved in and partly due to all of those young women. A general history of the pirates, though, attributes all of it to James Masson, and that's actually a pretty big oversight. Masson is a Frenchman. He's from Provence. Caraccioli is an Italian priest. Victory was an Italian ship out of Naples. But as soon as they turn pirate, it's all Philadelphia and Jamaica and finally teaching English to the locals. It's really lazy plagiarism on the part of Nathaniel Mist, if indeed he did write a general history volume two. But those honest accounts of those real voyages didn't sell well. But pirate stories with swashbuckling sea battles, including beautiful young queens who fall deeply in love with the dashing pirate James Masson, well, people just couldn't buy that fast enough. It's an excellent business model, just garbage history. However, I think that Mist, or whoever may have written the book, realized their blunder. After that lengthy anti-government manifesto and a few deadly encounters at sea and a steamy love affair with that exotic teenage queen, a general history begins to intertwine Thomas too and really shift its focus over to him. The story begins to get a bit more grounded in real history, but only kind of. It's presented as one cohesive story, but it reads more like a, a braid, you know, a, a hair braid. It's one solid unit, but the pieces are very distinct. It reads kind of like, if you'll permit a bit of exaggeration here, Captain Thomas II, out of Providence in America, sailed for Bermuda, where he accepted a letter of mark from the governor. Meanwhile, James Missone, with sword in hand and knife between his teeth, rode a rope to the deck of the enemy ship where he dueled the captain blade for blade. There was slicing, there was dicing, but with a mighty thrust, Missone drove his saber through the enemy captain's chest. On Bermuda, Thomas too agreed to sail with Captain George Drew, another privateer. They took a job with a slaving mission to the coast of Guinea. Meanwhile, basking in his victory, James Masson sneaked through the window of a seductive, nubile young queen. She gasped when she saw him, but James threw a hand over her mouth just in time. He could see her supple body quivering beneath her bed linens. But my husband will hear us, she said. Thomas too and George do get hit by a storm. That's pretty exciting stuff, right? Well, it would be if the queen's husband had not indeed heard his wife in flagrante. A giant of a man, all scars and muscle, squeezed his way through the door to his wife's bedchamber. Sword in hand, murder in his eyes, his first cut with his broadsword slices clean through Miss Own's saber and scores a hit across the pirate's chest. 
The blood splatters across the once clean linen sheets, now wet with sweat and Missone's own blood. Thomas II and George Drew were separated, but Thomas II made it safely to the coast of Guinea and eventually to Madagascar. But James Missone grabbed that bloody sweat-soaked sheet, swung round the brute entwining his neck in the cloth, and jumped out the window, holding to the fabric his full weight, crushing the monster's windpipe. When that beast finally fell limp, the beautiful queen helped him back through the window. Oh, what a horrid wound he gave you. If I bandage it up, do you think we'd be able to continue our... negotiation? You get the idea here. It's not quite that bad, but it's not far off. And when Thomas II does finally get into the piracy, his story does pick up a bit, but if I'm being really honest with myself, I kind of do feel for the author here. The story of Thomas II is among the most important stories in the Golden Age of Piracy, but when you look at the history, it's a bit sparse. I turned to a general history today to find something more fun to flesh out the story that I originally intended to tell. And I didn't find what I was looking for. Mostly it was the kind of melodrama I just related, but what I did find was maybe more interesting. That manifesto says something about the attitude of many people at the time. It's not quite something, but it's not nothing. I want you to remember that manifesto next time. I want you to remember one line in particular. When he says, If we cannot redress our wrongs, we withdraw from sharing the miseries which meaner spirits submit to. Such men are we, and if the world makes war upon us, the law of nature empowers us not only to be on the defensive, but also on the offensive. Caraccioli, a fictional priest, suggests that that sets them apart from pirates, men of dissolute lives, but that is, in essence, the crux of the entire golden age of piracy. That's the kind of justification that they will all use, from Blackbeard and Charles Vane and the Republic of Pirates all the way back to Henry Every. I want you to remember that sentiment next time, when Thomas II visits New York and while the crew of the Charles II sit idle in a Spanish port. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Let him live on in legend tonight.